Joshua chapter 3. We'll start there anyway. The nation of Israel is on the brink of destroying the great and mighty city of Jericho. The spies Joshua had sent returned with word that the people were melting in fear, melting in fear before Israel, and that God was indeed going before them as He had promised. The chapter break here between 3 and 4 really doesn't make any sense. You study these things, you're not really sure why the scribes and divided chapters 3 and 4 where they did. There's much longer chapters in the Bible than if you would have put 3 and 4 together. And sometimes, remember, that the numbers of the verses and chapters are not inspired, so they were added for clarity, but sometimes they kind of can break up a single narrative. Um, but there's no break in it. That's the thing. It goes from preparation for crossing to crossing to finally setting foot in the promised land. The account given to us in chapters 3 and 4 tonight. It accomplishes many things in advancing the story, but really we want to focus on two emphases that give it particular importance for us. The first being the real presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant throughout the narrative. Just in these two chapters alone, the Ark of the Covenant is mentioned 17 times. And then the memorial stones, which is really the focus of chapter 4, uh, in the Jordan or across the Jordan. The ark, the sign of Yahweh's presence among His people, meets us at almost every turn here. We're going to keep seeing it again and again. It reminds us that it's Yahweh Himself who leads His people into Canaan. It's Him who cuts off torrential waters, holds them back with His own hand. And so, though the Israelites are active in this narrative, we as readers need to notice that they're primarily spectators. Just like you and I, we, we don't do anything to deliver ourselves. We don't do anything to accomplish our salvation and our victory. We watch Christ. We trust in Christ and what He's done for us. And so the wonder, the power of God are absolutely amazing here as we'll see. Then when we come to the stones, the stones mean to tell us that getting through the river by way of this great miracle is not necessarily the main point. What happened there has to be remembered and it has to be told again and again and again. What just happened? Was that a sneeze? That's all right, but we can edit that out. That's okay. Don't worry about that. I thought somebody was crying. (laughs) I'm sorry. That's all right. That's all right. We'll cut that out. No big deal. But... um, the stones mean to tell us that, again, getting through the river by way of this great miracle is, is not really the main point. What happened there needs to be remembered and uh, told again and again and again, implying, if you will, that maybe the greatest enemy of faith might be forgetfulness and the tendency we have there. Joshua will drive the point home in his proclamation in 421 to 24 that Yahweh, the Lord of Israel, has done it again. And as Davis writes, God has put the Jordan River on the map of faith along with the Red Sea so that Gentile observers, that's us, might have clear proof of His might and Israel might reverently and continually submit to His sway. And so as we sojourn in faith between our deliverance and the true promised land, we must keep our eyes on the mighty God who goes before us in Christ. So let's pray and then we'll look together. Father, we thank You for Your Word, its certainty, its assurance, its promise. We thank You for Your Word incarnate above all, Father, the risen Christ, to whom we look for our salvation and deliverance, Father. I pray that tonight as we recount the story together that many of us know, probably all of us know or have read at least once or heard told, that it would be new to us in the sense of what we might draw from it in Christ for us. We ask and pray these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We start in verses, verse 1 to 6 of chapter 3 here. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim. And they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the, the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. 
Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. There's a repeating pattern, by the way, in this section 3 and 4 that deals with Israel's crossing of the Jordan by this amazing miracle of the Lord. And it's that the Lord gives a command to Joshua. Joshua communicates the Lord's command to Israel. And then Israel carries out the Lord's command. Three times you see that. Boom, boom, boom. That's exactly how it should be. That kind of helps us set the parameters of what we're looking at tonight. Three times the author follows that pattern. Uh, that not only continues through both chapters, but ties them together. So he's sticking to that pattern to help us understand it more than he's concerned with like a strict chronological order. Uh, there's also the theme of God exalting Joshua as the new leader in Israel. The Lord's words in uh, way back in chapter, not way back, but back in chapter 1, verse 2, arise, go over this Jordan. They're finally picked back up here in chapter 3. After the report of the spies that their enemies across the river are already melting in fear, the Israelites break camp at Shittim. They get ready to cross. They've been camped in the plains of Moab since Numbers chapter 22. This had been the, or that was the last stage. This has been the last stage of their 40 year wandering in the wilderness. They fold up their tents, pack their possessions, collect their flocks and herds. It would have included all of this. The priests make the ark ready. The Levites have disassembled the tabernacle. Israel is ready to go. It's about eight miles down to the east bank of the Jordan from Shittim, where they are going to stay for three more days once they get there in verse two. It's about 15 miles, by the way, to the north of here that Jacob, the great patriarch of Israel, wrestled with the Lord for a blessing at the Jabbok, which is just a tributary of the Jordan River, after he had been freed from service to his uncle Laban, and just before a very uncertain reunion with his estranged brother Esau as he returned to Canaan. Now, in Joshua chapter 3, all the sons of Jacob, the sons of Jacob, the nation of Israel, are about to receive an amazing blessing from the Lord and their freedom from slavery in Egypt before their confrontation with the Canaanites. As they wait, the Lord's preparing them to cross to witness the glory of this miracle that's coming. So after three days, the officers pass through the camp. We can presume at Joshua's orders, right, telling everybody to get up, follow the ark when you see the priests beginning to carry it. Then in verse 4, we read that they're to follow it from a distance of about 2,000 cubits. That's about a half mile. While the reason for the distance might have had something to do with staying away from the holiness of the ark, we've read that a lot up to this point since Exodus when we first saw the ark. Here, the text doesn't give that for the reason they need to keep this distance at all. I think that's important. The main reason for the distance in this story is that the ark is the visible location of the Lord's otherwise invisible presence. They need to be able to see the Lord as they cross the Jordan and enter the promised land. And God is saying, I will be in the ark. I can be seen in the ark. I uh, said that the ark is mentioned 17 times in these two chapters alone. It's mentioned 195 times in the Old Testament as a whole. It's the central um, focus of this miracle of crossing the Jordan River in chapters 3 and 4. The movement of the ark is the movement of the Lord Himself. God is placing Himself by His Word in a very earthy thing um, so that people can know that He's there and His promise is certain. That's a pattern in Scripture. God does this quite often. Uh, just as it was under Moses, it is under Joshua. The Lord leads Israel, directs Israel by means of the ark. To follow the ark is to follow the Lord. It's absolutely crucial that what Israel, uh, that what happens here, Israel sees it as the Lord's work. And unless they have proper insight, expectancy, preparation, they won't see His work. And so they won't be able to understand its significance for them. And I think in this, beloved, is the first point for us tonight. The Ark of the Covenant, which, of course, was housed in the tabernacle, prefigures the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Word became flesh and tabernacle, dwelt among us in John 1, 14. 
throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus was the visible presence of God among and for the benefit of his people. Right? It's, it's Christ where their eyes should have been, needed to be. There's just very quickly, when Jesus says that statement, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea. It's the temple mount that he's talking about. That's where he is. If you had faith in me, you could toss that entire system into the sea and be saved. So the ark is everything up to this point, but it prefigures the tabernacling of Christ among us as the visible presence of God incarnate. He was crucified, buried, rose again, ascended, yet he remains with us. What did he say to us? I will never leave you, never forsake you. Matthew 28, 20. Well, a little, ver- uh, I guess a few verses. No, that's, that's where, there at the end. Where has the Lord said he is for you and I today? In his word, beloved. By his name, in the waters of baptism. That's why we say his name at his table. In the Lord's Supper until the end of this age. Until the end of this age. This is where God has said, this is where you can find me. Primarily the gospel, the word of God that saves. When you and I read the Old Testament or in the Old Testament about the centrality, the necessity of the Ark of the Covenant for Israel, you and I ought to relate this to the incarnate Christ for us in his ongoing presence through his word, through the means that he has chosen. This is where we know he will be. It's by putting our eyes on him that we're strengthened in our faith. That's why the officers tell Israel that they have to keep this half-mile distance between themselves and the ark in verse 4. That you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. There's a very um, physical means, but that's a deeply spiritual thing for God to say. Let us now hear the same types of words, the same promises of texts like Hebrews 12.2 and 1 Peter 2.21 respectively here. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. And that Christ died for our sakes, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. We put our eyes on Jesus. So the anticipation is mounting. The priests raise the ark in verse 6. The Lord himself is on the move. And we pick it up in verse 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the ark of the covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. So God deems it very important for the faith of Israel that he exalt his servant Joshua for them after the death of of Moses, Their great leader has died. They are beginning the conquest of the promised land. It's crucial not only that Joshua feels secure in his position, but that Israel is confident that he is competent to lead them under God. God knew how vital his people's opinion of Joshua was for the upcoming wars in Canaan. And on this day, God is going to stoop down to do something amazing in the Jordan River. What's the point of this? great miracle at the Jordan. The immediate answer would be, you would think, so that Israel could cross into the promised land. And this is how God is going to do it. But think about what we know about Israel's development as a nation up to this point. God could have accomplished the crossing of the Jordan in a very normal way if he would have wanted to. A very normal way. We already know from the building of the tabernacle how skilled um, many of the people are in Israel, how great their craftsmen are. And were gifted by God to build the tabernacle itself. God gifted them artistic ability, practical ability to build. So there, there were other ways to get across the Jordan. As commentator um, Adolf Harstad, he asks, Why not give gifts here for a human engineering project involving logs, ropes, rafts, or boats? Right? You, God could do that. He could have endowed people with the gift to make amazing boats that would have forded the river and made it over and crossed over. That would have been an amazing thing to see. This whole nation of hundreds of thousands of people crossing over. But the Lord, as the text explicitly states, has planned an awesome act at the river for several farther reaching purposes. 
And the first is revealed in 3.7. And the last is made explicit at the very end of this account in chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. The miracle shows all peoples that the God of Israel is the only God who is strong enough to save His people. In this act of God, Joshua will be exalted as the new leader. And God will be exalted as the one true and living God. And this is the second point for us tonight. Note the similarity between what the Lord promises and does for the Old Testament Joshua here at the Jordan and the people of Israel. And then in Acts chapter 2 verses 22 to 24 concerning Jesus, the true and greater Joshua, if you will. As Timothy Keller, who passed away this week, would have said, the true and greater Joshua, the true and better Joshua, whose name, by the way, means Savior. The Apostle Peter proclaims in Acts 2.22, what does he say? You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles and signs and wonders that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. The explicit command to the priest to raise the ark, it comes in 3.8. We've already seen it three times in the first eight verses. It's the invisible Lord in the visible ark at the center of this story, just as it is the visible Lord for us now in Christ, present for us in His Word and the means He's chosen for us to behold and receive His grace through His indisputable power over death and hell and sin and the grave. There are ways God has given for us to see this and to remember this. And we need them. Just as Moses used the staff, Joshua will use the ark as God attaches His grace, His delivering testimony and promise to these visible earthly things. The things through which God continues to do the miracles of salvation today. We put our eyes on Jesus, beloved. Picking it up in verse 9. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here. And listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that He will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. That's what this miracle is going to affirm for them. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man, And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. That's certainly important for God to exalt Joshua for Israel. It's also crucial, and of course more crucial for God, to assure His people of His competency, of His own great power. The people will know for certain that God is present in their very midst. God is going to overwhelm the eyes of His people with a spectacle. This is really something else here. We're going to dig into it a little bit in a few minutes. Showing them once again that He's not some distant, vague deity of some kind. He's omnipotent. He's transcendent. He's intimate. He's close. And He's active for their salvation. In other words, Israel's God is not like the Canaanite gods who are merely idols, worthless and empty things. So what is is being said here? If the Lord can tame a raging river, He can probably stop the attacking Amorites. If He can stop the Jordan from flowing, He can probably stop the Gergesites from advancing. And on and on it goes. If God can get Israel to the other side of the land, He can certainly give them the land. There's a certain logic to this act of assurance. And once God solidifies their faith, The people are going to value the land from which God has promised to remove its inhabitants even more. And so the anticipation is building in this narrative. The author keeps presenting us with these commands for Israel uh, because something is about to happen, but we don't really know until we get all the way down to verse 13 exactly what the Lord is going to do. Think of all the things that have been said. Sanctify yourselves in verse 5. But what do they need to be consecrated for? What's about to happen? In other places in the Old Testament, this is this meant washings and being ritually clean and sexually clean and all these things. So why? What's, what's going to happen? What is God going to do? Tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Well, in verse 5, well, what kind? And what does it mean that He'll do them among us this time? 
Why does it matter when the priests set their foot in the river in verse 8? What does that mean? At this point, when they hear that, they don't know. Why do the people have to gather close to Joshua to hear his words in verse 9? What's he going to say this time? And when he finally says, here is how you will know that the living God is among you in verse 10. What are we going to see, Joshua? How are we going to know that? Take one man from each of the twelve tribes of Israel in verse 12. Why? What, what's the significance of these twelve men? What are they going to do? Even after the words of the Lord your God spoken in verses 9 through 13, we still don't know exactly what the Lord is about to do. The suspense is building. No one wants to miss what's about to happen. And we see in verse 11 that the ark is once again the focus for Israel's eyes and for the readers. By continuing to associate himself with the ark, God is showing that he is the one who is about to perform this amazing act. And that is such, he is the one who will lead Israel into the Jordan River. When Israel follows the ark into the riverbed, they're following the Lord himself. That's what God is hammering home to them. It's in verse 13 we finally begin to learn what God is going to do things I think I, I would imagine Joshua probably already knows. God has probably already told him. The Lord's people have nothing to fear from the raging river, which means they have nothing to fear from the raging Canaanites, since the one they follow into the river is none other than the mighty Lord of all the earth. Notice that name repeated twice. Who owns and commands, that means, every single drop of water for that night. This theme, God with us, will find its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. In God incarnate, who is the living God that comes to dwell among all humanity. God's greatest miracle among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's the third point for us tonight, beloved. Wherever we go in this world, if we are in Christ, we are safe. If we are in Christ, we are safe. So we put our eyes on Jesus. Pick it up in verse 14 here. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, so right on the edge of all men, here it comes, and you get a parenthesis. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarathon, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. Imagine seeing this, by the way. They're about a mile and a third from Jericho. And there might be some people watching. Imagine seeing this. And we're going to talk every time I, I, you know, as a kid or whatever, read this story or hear about the river or see drawings of, you know, the stones. It's always this placid little river, you know, maybe no wider than the Ohio over here. And you just, I mean, it's far, but it's not that big. Wait till we get into what was really happening here. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, verse 17, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Verse 14 picks back up on the action that began back in verse 6. And then like I made reference to, you have this great action-killing line in verse 15. Dale Ralph Davis asked, Why would anyone want to ruin a perfectly good story with a report on river conditions? Because the river helps one to appreciate the miracle. So let's talk about the Jordan River here. What, what did God do here? I think the reality of what God is doing here will be even more valuable to us, as it surely would have been to Israel if, if, if we take a few minutes here. Commentaries are very helpful study guides with details like this. So the actual Jordan Valley, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, varies in breadth from 3 to sometimes uh, 14 miles. All right, The river's floodplain is in this valley that they're in. It's about 200 yards to 1 mile wide. Now, this floodplain is packed where they are with tangled bushes, jungle growth. Um, in fact, it's not, it's not necessarily the river itself so much as this 
jungle under it that would have made it so hard to cross. To ford the Jordan then, and for if, if you're trying to do it for one person, let alone a nation, you'd have to go through this jungle as much as you'd have to go through the river that's running over top of it. Then there's the channel of the river itself, which if it's anything like it was in more recent history, is 90 to 100 feet broad, going from 3 feet deep at some of its fords to 10 to 12 feet at others. Now, you can imagine then how strong the current would have been in the Jordan because of the dramatic drop in elevation, about 40 feet per mile near the Sea of Galilee, and then an average of 9 feet per mile overall. Now, all this means that the Jordan River, Israel stood on the edge of that spring, wasn't some placid little stream that God nicely backed the water up about this far so that everybody could, you know, depending on how wide you were, make it through. This was a raging torrent of water about a mile wide and covered a mass of tangled brush and jungle growth. That is what that little parenthesis in verse 15 is saying. This is the time of year when it's flowing the fastest, it's the deepest, it's the most overrun, and the brush and everything underneath is it's just packed full here. Here's why we get this detail then. The living God led Israel through the Jordan River at precisely the time of year when such a thing looked absolutely impossible. Why does God insist on doing things like this, on picking the most inopportune time for them to cross the river. Why not make it easier on himself? Well, really, I guess the first answer would be, you remember when he parted an entire sea and made it stand up on two walls on either side while the whole nation walked through it. But this is amazing. Why does God always seem to work like this? Why does God always seem to work against the odds? You know the answer to that question. We all know the answer to this question. The Lord delights to show us His might in the face of our helplessness, complete helplessness, so that you and I never forget this one thing. We can do nothing to achieve our own salvation. And God will show us that in a trillion different ways. I don't understand all God's ways and means, nor do I understand how His will works in our lives. But think about this for a minute. If we weren't great sinners that couldn't get it, He isn't much of a Savior. Not encouraging sin. I hope you understand that. But there is a very real sense in which the worse you are, the more ripe you are for God to show Himself strong on your behalf and for the sight of everybody else that's watching. It's in the absolute tangled, thick, wide, deep messes of our lives that God means to show us that in our glaring inability to fix ourselves, He can. He does. He is the all-sufficient Savior. So if they make it through this river, it's only by God's grace and God's power. Just like you and I. If you and I make it all the way through, it's only because of God's grace and power. What is at the center of all this again? The ark. There is the Lord. There is God where He said He would be for Israel to look so they'd know where to go and where to walk and that that's where He was. This is the fourth point for you and I. Until we cross over to the other side, we need to be able to see Him. We have to be able to. If one Israelite person, just one, would have stepped out of the lane God made, sought some other way of getting through in their own ingenuity, own wisdom, their own effort, they would drown. They'd be washed away. Their body probably never recovered. We are as desperate for the Lord's real presence with us. Even though we're walking in the lane God has for us. We are going to be tempted. Just when you can hear the raging river, it's right there. I mean, it's close enough that you can see it. You have all this brush and you're navigating through. And we we need to be able to see Him. That's why they're always keeping this distance. I mean, how big is this gap? At all times, there has to be at least this half mile, two thousand cubits between the people and the ark. This is a massive opening, but you can drown really quickly if you don't know where to go. That's what the ark is for. That's what the word is for for you and I. We're so desperate 
for the Lord's presence with us. We need to find Him everywhere He said He would be for us. I don't mean something silly or mystical or Catholic when I say that. But the Word, the water, like don't, don't just make baptism about what you're doing. Remember what God said He is doing for you there. All the things attached to what He's doing for you in that. The bread, the wine. We need so much more. The Bible is telling us we need so much more than our own thoughts and feelings. I, I need more than to remember when I made the decision to follow Jesus. I need more than that. I said, no, I, that's enough. Then why are there other things to see and to remember? Don't We need all the help we can get. We need God in our midst. We need Him visible to our eyes all the time. As Harstad says, the timing cannot be worse for a safe crossing, yet the timing cannot be better for miracles, for a sense-captivating, miraculous display of the Lord's power and salvation. When the way is darkest, when the lights have all gone out, when there's nowhere to go, that's when God is most mighty to save. Every time you and I tread on the brink of our Jordan River, if you will, in springtime, when the water's awful, we need to look out and see Jesus walking on the water. I mean, what an amazing jump in the power of God between God clearing the water for people to walk through with the ark and Joshua, and then Jesus walking on it in a storm, in a gale, in the middle of the night on the ocean. No lights on your boat, nothing. And here He is, here He comes. And He meant to pass by them, one of the Gospel authors Right, so I was just going for a stroll on the water in the middle of the night. I was just going to walk right by you guys. I've got you. You're going to be fine. But let me come on and help since you don't believe. By His greatest miracle, the resurrection from the dead, you and I will cross over into something far more amazing than a little strip of land in the modern day Middle East. Beloved, you and I have come to Mount Zion. To the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem in Hebrews 12, 22. We own an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us in 1 Peter 1, 4. Israel lost everything God is about to give them. Our inheritance can't be touched. So we put our eyes on Jesus, chapter 4. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So, getting through the river, again, this isn't the end of it all. They have to remember what happened there. The main focus of chapter 4 is these memorial stones. In four one, we have the... Second instance of that three-part pattern of command and actions. In 4, 1 through 3, we see the Lord's command to Joshua. In 4 through 7, Joshua relays that command to Israel. In verses 8 to 13, Israel carries out the command. The point of this design from the author is to show that the Lord is the one initiating everything. It all starts with Him at each, at each step along the way. He also accomplishes everything necessary for the salvation of His people. And of course He does. This is a nice story in the Bible that proves salvation is monergistic. It's all one-sided. It's God doing it for us. But it also reinforces, again, that Joshua is God's leader for Israel, and the Lord blesses Israel as they obey Him, as they obey and follow the words of their chosen leader. The Lord's command here is for or God being the chooser of Joshua. The Lord's command here is for Joshua to have Israel built a 12-stone memorial to commemorate the very day they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground. Notice those words in verse 3, from here. So this is happening out in the middle on the dry ground in the middle of the Jordan River. That's where all this is taking place right now. The Lord is giving the command from where? From His location at the Ark of the Covenant. He's right in the middle. He's right there in the thick of things. You're passing through the water. I'm here with you. He's standing in the middle, holding back the waters, protecting His people at the greatest point of danger. All in this ark is what they're meant to see. God is not a distant being. Again, He's fulfilling one of the aims of His miracle. It was expressed through Joshua back in 3.10. 
By this you will know that the living one is in your midst. Your midst. The people can see the effect of His presence among them with their own eyes. They know it from experience. As Christians today, we can think of Jesus doing all of His amazing signs and wonders. Where? Right in the middle of the people. With His enemies right there. With His opponents right there. With the forces of darkness presumably lingering somewhere. Trying to interrupt and impede. And here He remains. For He is with us to the end of the age. He'll never leave us. Never forsake us. We put our eyes on Jesus. Like these stones... Again, why not just have the story? Just say it. Just the Word. The Word of God is sufficient. Of course it is. And God is extra merciful and extra kind. So let me also have you build this memorial, this 12-stone memorial, so that at any time somebody needs reminded, you take the back. You said, you rem- do you want to know what the Lord did here for us? And for your mom and for your dad and for your grandpa, and as, you know, as time stretched on. Like the stones were meant to be visible aids to help the people keep their eyes on what the Lord has done. In the Gospel, in Christ for us, where He said He would be, we keep our eyes on Him. Don't forget what the Lord has done. We have some memorial stones too. We, we have them. We do these things. We, we have baptism. We have bread and wine in the Lord's Supper for us. Don't forget. Don't forget. He's done all this for us as He did for the Israelites. We have this, for us, it's a monthly reminder that Christ died for me. His body was given for me. His blood was given for me. It's, that's, that's why, like, I, you know, you've heard me talk about it before. I, I wish we were able to do it more often, as often as possible. Because if, if all it was was this ordinance that we practice, then yeah, it would get too repetitive to have it all the time. But it's more than that. That God's reminders are more than reminders. Right? Our remembrance is, is to be fixed on something so real, and that's, that's what's there. Don't forget what He's done. He's done all this for us as He worked for the Israelites, that you and I may remember. Do this in remembrance of me. Picking it up in verse 4. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever." This is why God wanted Joshua to take one member from each of the twelve tribes of Israel. So that they would take twelve stones. Israel must not only remember for themselves what God had done, the people that were there, they also needed to teach this to their children. The the parents weren't only left with being able to tell a story of what happened so their kids would be amazed by it. They were to know their covenant Lord did this for the salvation of His people. The point of telling the children in each generation was not so they would just be infatuated with the magnificent, but that they would grow themselves in their relationship with the Lord and their hope and confidence in Him. They had the Word. They had the Word, and it's sufficient. God, in His mercy, also set up stones. God also put the Jordan River on the map of His faithfulness for Israel, as Dale Davis said earlier. So, beloved, consider something a little crazy tonight, maybe, that we don't always think about. We don't just have the gospel to help us remember it. I know that sounds sacrilegious, but stay with me. Isn't that enough? Just the word to say, absolutely. No question. All you need to do is receive the word of the gospel to be saved. No question. Wouldn't deny that or I'd be a heretic, right? But God has also poured out more kindness for us, more help for us so that we don't forget. And listen, do we not need it? There are times when trying to remember what I have done or what I have said to God and dates and times and like that, I, I, my, as time goes on, you get less and less able to remember things. And so you start to doubt what really happened. What if there are external things where God has said, there you can find hope and confidence. There you can find my presence. There you can find me. So look to those things too. Not that you, 
you know, the word is insufficient. It's that we are insufficient to believe the word. So God piles it on for us because he's so filled with mercy for his children. We need something more than the memory of our own decisions and our own promises. We need something to keep looking at that God has set up for us. This rock that led these people and followed, it was Christ, 1 Corinthians 10 says. There isn't much distance as much as we think between the Jordan River and us tonight. They had 12 memorial stones. We have the stones. We have the word and the water and the bread and the cup for remembrance. Don't discount as unnecessary what God did for you by thinking that your memory of something is sufficient. We put our eyes on Jesus, beloved. One commentator wrote about how the fact that God insisted on Israel remembering this day implies that the event was unique. God won't usually work with such amazing magnitude in everyday life. Right? That, that's, that's not really the plan. Every fifth Wednesday, I'll do something amazing. That's, that's not the way it works. But most of the time, this is, these things are so far apart. One generation sees these things, another one doesn't. Maybe they see something else, maybe they don't. Apparently, this sort of thing will be infrequent. So, I mean, Jesus died once, and we weren't there. So God established markers for us to remember like we do in the Lord's Supper. That's intentional. God wants us to remember. To remember. And you've you've taken the Lord's Supper probably around your kids. What what do kids do before they've taken it on their own? What is is happening? There's a chance to tell, oh, this is what it means. This is what it means. The standard method of God retaining His people's faith is not frequent displays of supernatural power. Quote, but by faithful witness and teaching of those things where God has already demonstrated His love and power to save us. That's the fifth point for us tonight. God did things to establish things for Israel and has done so for us in Christ. Verse 8, picking it up, trying to hurry here. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan. According to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua, and they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day at the time of the book being written. For the priests bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. So, um, in verse 8 here, Israel carries out what God commanded Joshua back in verses 2 and 3. And what Joshua commanded them in verse 5. The 12 stone memorial set up by one member from each of the 12 tribes. By this they have their memorial, the object lesson for their children. Whenever they might see it, you're hiking with your kid through the promised land and you come across this pile of stones on the shore. Say, let me tell you about this. And then notice in verse 9, Joshua sets up his own 12 stone memorial. That's strange. Either the Lord commanded him to do this earlier and it's not recorded for us in Scripture, or Joshua wanted to build his own in gratitude for the Lord exalting him through this miracle. It reads like the location of his memorial also is in the middle of the Jordan. So these are going to be big rocks rather than on the east edge of the riverbed where the priests touch the water. Meaning even during flood stage, at least the top is probably still visible of Joshua's memorial. That would catch the eyes, wouldn't it? I think Joshua was being very pastoral here. These two stone memorials of Joshua remind us that it's always good to meditate on, to celebrate, to commemorate the gracious and mighty wonders of God. And this, of course, this type of thing culminates in worship for our gracious salvation. When God makes His people themselves markers, living sacrifices, our whole lives, lives of worship, points of light everywhere for humanity to see and hear the tale of Jesus. 
in our salvation in Romans 12, 1 and 2. The sixth point for you and I. There are stones, words, elements, and the very lives of God's people that call attention to God's grace and His power, helping us and others to put their eyes on Jesus. Notice that God is performing His miracle for the entire nation in this text, including the eastern tribes. The reference here to Reuben, Gad, and the half of Manasseh, you remember that from chapter 1, verses 12 and 18. They were brought in. Joshua, the, the author's tying up somewhat of a loose end here. These tribes promised to cross the Jordan armed for their brothers, ready for war. Now we find out that they did that. They kept their word, which was God's word, since they're doing what God had commanded them through Moses. Verse 14. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. We've seen the links to which God went to make sure Israel revered its new leader as it had the old one. The Lord is committed to wanting respect for the leaders of His people. It's crucial to our faith for the road. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. Submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Verse 15 here. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So by his command here, the Lord shows that the Ark of the Covenant, which we know now is the location of his presence, is remaining at the very center of their salvation. This has been made clear all throughout the narrative. Here, notice it's called the Ark of the Testimony in verse 16, rather the covenant. The two stone tablets of the Ten Commandments inside the Ark that they're carrying give testimony to the Lord's covenant with Israel. And here, by that name, by that label, God is affirming his promise to be with this people All this has given more testimony to that promise, to that fact, as Christ does for us in the most sure and certain, ineffable way. Living, dying, and rising for us and ascending. The sixth point is that in the new covenant now, we don't rely on tablets of stone inside a wooden ark. We rely on the body and blood of the living and incarnate Christ for us. You and I have the testimony to that in Scripture in our covenant. So we put our eyes on Jesus. Verse 17. So Joshua commanded the priests come up out of the Jordan. This probably sounds redundant to us. We've said this. We know this. But it serves to show us once again how faithful Joshua is as a leader to do precisely what the Lord commands. And now the text closes out the great miracle beginning in verse 18. And when the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. Notice that the timing of the lifting up of their feet out of the water and the return of the raging waters of the Jordan is exact. They happened at the exact same moment. The author wants to make sure, as God wanted to make sure for Israel that day, that no one tries to dismiss this as some natural, materialistic phenomenon. That's not a coincidence. The moment God said that when you take your feet out, it'll return, and then they take their feet out and it returns, nobody's going to be able to say, well, that's, that's just a nice, happy coincidence. No, no, it's not. And this mile-wide thing they're crossing, it's exact. You can't dismiss The hand of God is the sole means of His people's salvation. All the credit for this miracle is God's alone. He is the only cause of this. And He uses the soles of the priest's feet, again, such an earthy thing, feet, to start and to finish the miracle. When they hit, I'll pull the waters apart. When they come out, I'll bring them back together. Verse 19, this little note on the date of the Lord's fidelity, the tenth day of the first month. It's nice to have historical a historical marker. Is that all this is? No. Beloved, 40 years later to the day that Israel prepared to leave Egypt by setting apart the Passover lamb in Exodus 12:23, God completes his promise of freedom and redemption to Israel the exact same day. And Joshua drives home the point for us in 20 to 24. And these 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan 
Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The point of all this, you ask, God is faithful to his promises. And he's proved it again. He's done it again. Joshua underscores the critical need for the ongoing teaching and witness to the saving acts of the Lord, even among his people that were delivered by it. Keep telling us the same story. Joshua 4.24 is written for every person in every nation of the world today still. Let everybody know and believe the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. It's the power of God that makes good on the promises of God. So we look to God's power and promises incarnate now. Not in a box, in a person. We put our eyes on Jesus for us everywhere he said he would meet us. And set up a way to behold and partake of him. Israel now stands on the other side of the Jordan River. Again, about a mile and a third from the city of Jericho. I'm packing at this point. If I'm a Jared Cohen, Jerichite, Jerichese, I don't know. But I mean, are you kidding me? I'm getting out of Dodge. This doesn't mean Israel already regained Eden. They're eating from the tree of life. But they are the beneficiaries of God's grace in real time. You and I have come to Mount Zion, but we don't yet stand on the soil of the new heavens and the new earth. Where we need no sun, for Christ will be the light, but we are the real-time beneficiaries of God's grace in the world right now. As we sojourn in faith between our deliverance and the true promised land, we must keep our eyes on the mighty God who goes before us. You and I have a cross. We have an empty tomb. We have the Word. We have the water. We have the bread. We have the wine. There is Jesus for us. We live who have looked to Him. You and I, beloved, will stand safely on the other side. Praise Jesus.